Good evening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. My name is Liana Ozolani Fitzgerald. I'm a political sociologist here at the Department of Sociology, and I'm very pleased to be here to welcome Steve Croshaw to the LSE today as part of the LSE's Ralph Miliband Lecture Program. Steve Croshaw is an acclaimed journalist and a human rights advocate. Uh, he works as the senior advocacy advisor on global thematic issues at the Amnesty International. And previously, he's been the London director of the Human Rights Watch. And also, I'd like to mention a visiting fellow here at the LSE Human Rights. Um, he's also the author of numerous celebrated books. The most recent is a book on nonviolent protest entitled Street Spirit, The Power of Protest and Mischief. Other books include Small Acts of Resistance, Easier Fatherland, and Goodbye to the USSR. In his lecture, he'll be sharing with us some of the themes, I hope, from the latest book, exploring what Václav Havel calls the power of the powerless, and the role of creative mischief in achieving surprising change. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE protest. I would also like to please ask you to turn your, put your phones on silent so that the uh, recording of the event is not disrupted. Um, so the event is being recorded and will hopefully be ma made available as a podcast. And as usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to the speaker, and there will also be book signing taking place just outside the lecture theater. So for now, please join me in welcoming Steve Croshaw to LSE to deliver his lecture entitled, Does Protest Really Work? Thank you very much indeed. Thank you to the LSE for inviting me here um, this evening. And thank you to having such a full room. I can't tell you how wonderful it is when you have a full room, or put differently, the worry that no one's actually going to be interested in the themes that you're speaking in. So uh, grateful and delighted, and look forward, as, as Lena mentioned, there'll be time for, for questions at the end also, which um, please, as I always say, do make them as challenging as possible. They're always the most fun when they're the challenging questions. Um, so the question, does protest really work, uh, is the, um, the question on on the table before us. You won't be surprised to hear if you've come here that uh, I'm gonna, not going to spoil the punchline if you know which answer I'm going to come up with at, by the end of the lecture. But much more than a couple of years ago, I think, if I was giving the, the same or similar talks about some of these themes, all of us know we do live in very dark and, and difficult times in, in so many ways. And so, although there will be, I think, a lot of positive things to take away and things to understand, and above all of what too often is underestimated in terms of change, um, we are, I think, facing some challenges that we, we haven't really had. And it's unsurprising that we see endless articles in New Yorker, is there any point in protesting, or Atlantic Magazine, why street protests don't work, and so on and so forth. Well... Where am I coming from on all of this? Part is, as I've described, there are different things that I've seen over the years, but my, the core of my biography, in many ways, where I really understood things, was when I was living many years ago in the, uh, the uh, late 20th century, way back in dark history, during the time of the Cold War, and I was living in Poland at that time, um, and I was studying theatre, I was teaching English, and this was a time where for... All the members of the audience, it's absolutely obvious, but it's 
very easy to forget. The Cold War was there. It was there forever. Actually, it had only been there for a few decades. But the assumption was that the new, no longer new realities of the Soviet bloc was absolutely going to be there forever, the one-party system. I'd lived in Russia for a year. I came to live in Poland. And while I was there, what I saw and lived through were these incredible changes which deeply influenced me to this day really above all in understanding that never trust people who say that things can't be done because well they may be right but equally they may not be so in august 1980 mass strikes started in gdansk in the northern port city of, of dansk and shipyards and right across poland they had huge demands for freedom of expression, freedom of assembly. It was officially an independent trade union that was wanted, but actually it was really becoming an informal opposition movement. And the word solidarity in this hallowed sanctum of LSE, perhaps better known, but broadly solidarity, the name of it and what it achieved, I think is much less well known than it should be, because that was what really broke a hole in the whole Soviet bloc uh, many years before the Soviet bloc itself fell apart because it was absolutely impossible to imagine these demands of freedom of expression, freedom of assembly could be achieved. You know, it's like having a democratic newspaper in North Korea today. It just, just wasn't going to happen. And so the Times, for example, at that time, I quote the Times merely because I kept it at the time, but other papers were saying, said, the authorities, quote, clearly cannot agree to the demands for free trade unions. And the reason was because the Russians wouldn't agree. So that was your given. They won't do it, and so it's not going to happen. And then the, the editorial writer of the Times explained to us all that, luckily, the, quote, romantic and volatile pole of tradition is now, quote, unquote, less in evidence. So what this basically meant was they've now got sensible enough in Poland. They will only demand what uh, the leadership is ready to give them, they won't go for beyond that. And it was a sensible argument to make. It seemed a very sensible analysis. The Soviet leader at that time was Leonid Brezhnev, the man who had sent tanks into uh, Czechoslovakia only a decade earlier, who had sent tanks into Afghanistan only a year earlier, and who rather wonderfully had given his name to an entire historical doctrine called the Brezhnev Doctrine, which is basically, if I don't like what's going on in a particular country where I think they should be doing it differently, I'll send the tanks in. We have, of course, seen echoes of that in the 21st century. But uh, um, So... Uh, Brez Leonid Brezhnev was in the Kremlin. It seemed unthinkable. But the power of people's self-belief and the demand created, unbelievably, the permission. And what we're seeing there is Lech Wałęsa, the electrician uh, and leader of the strikes, with this magnificent, absurdly magnificent pen, which was a souvenir pen from the Pope's visit the previous year, signing the agreement when that was televised live. And I can still remember the extraordinariness of that moment of, like, the world changed. And uh, it's very, very difficult to overstate the importance of that moment, not least, as I say, for impossible things happening. A year later, tanks went on the streets, martial law was declared, and all of those who'd said, oh, this is unreal, were, of course, able to say, you see, we told you so. We always said this was not going to go well, and now you see that there are indeed tanks on the streets because this is, it went beyond what, again, to quote the Times the previous year, goes beyond what the Russians feel able to accept. 
But the thing was, the Poles were not quite having that. Again, there was that kind of dogged bit of rebellious DNA which went back into, uh, back into occupied history, of which they had many occupations over the previous 150 years. And um, so one little protest, I'll describe a couple which have that creative heart, which, as was mentioned, I do believe is sometimes one of the heart of effective and impactful protests is the creative element. And above all, including and especially when it requires incredible courage to be so, um, to, to be using that creativity. So Solidarity declared a boycott of television news. Quite familiar in many places, you say that the television news is uh, declaring you know, propaganda and you hate it, and so people boycott it. So okay, people started to boycott it. Then a second group said, well, yeah, I'm boycotting, but like, nobody knows I'm boycotting, so wouldn't we to do something with it? And so those people would take their televisions and they would put them in the windows of their apartments facing out onto the street with a nice little thing which basically said, hello, we don't want to have our television here, we have disconnected it and we're not watching it. A third group, and by now we're talking it started in a very specific place called Świdnik in eastern Poland, but later spread, the third group said, well, yeah, it's great to kind of put your TV in the window, but we want to do something. We want to feel we're with others. Um, and that's what we feel really protesting is about. And so they, every seventh day at 7.30, would go out into the main square of Świdnik, I say, and then other places, and would walk around the square with no slogans, because you got arrested for the slogan, so it's difficult to tell who was and wasn't protesting, but suddenly the square would get full at 7.30. That worked as well in a small, defiant way. But then there was the fourth category, which is my favourite of all the categories, is people who said, well, look, we like the idea of doing something with others, but we also like the idea of showing it's about the television. And so those people actually took the television out of the apartment, not just onto the windowsill, but took it out. And you can see here, this is actually recreated for a documentary film, but the events are absolutely real. Took them outside and started carrying their televisions around. Those who didn't want to carry it on their shoulders would put it in a baby in a pushchair and wander around. So what you had was the central square in this little town full of people pushing around televisions and pushchairs. The authorities who had as many guns and tanks as they wanted, they had no idea what to do. The only thing they could do was to change the curfew from 11 o'clock at night back to 7 o'clock at night, whereupon these same protesters said, okay, be our guest, and they did it for the afternoon news instead. In other words, all of that power that they had, that creativity, just managed to flip it until they no longer had quite as much power as they thought. Many, many other such protests throughout this time, where again the Western commentators had utterly written off solidarity, was a, a blip that had lasted for a year, it was now illegal, like obviously it was illegal, like why would this possibly happen? But again the creative protests continued. And this theme, a group called the Orange Alternative, I, is, is a favourite of mine where in every country, of course, where you have graffiti, political critical graffiti, governments come along and wipe off the graffiti and paint it over. And that will happen again and again, so you'll get long lines of white paint across the thing. So what the Poles, starting in one city in the western city of Wrocław, but again it spread nationwide, started doing, was to paint gnomes or dwarfs, they're called little red hats, um, krasnoludki, little red folk in, in Polish, and they would put those onto the walls instead. And so what you saw was lots of little cheerful red hats 
all over the place. And again, the authorities kind of knew that they were being mocked. They knew this was against, but it wasn't saying we demand solidarity. So they desperately painted over these um, gnomes or the dwarfs. Um, but at the same time, when there was a revolution of the gnomes, uh, one of my favorite ever police messages ended up saying, arrest all the gnomes, arrest all the gnomes. Um, and that sense of irony and mockery went right the way through all of those protests, which went right the way through the 80s. At the time when this opposition movement, I say it didn't call itself opposition movement, but this union movement, had been utterly written off by the established, not just the communist regime itself, but others elsewhere. So you could say, okay, nice little stories, but where does it actually get us? Well, what you're seeing there on the left-hand side is the... Um, uh, is the, um, a poster for a, uh, uh, a known revolution in June of 1988. Within a few months of that, that led to a roundtable talks between the government and Solidarity. And that, in turn, led to an election held the following year, June 1989, where... There's Gary Cooper with his solidarity lapel and his ballot paper instead of the gun. You can't actually see it on this poster, but underneath it says, 4th of June, it's high noon. And so it was high noon. It was an electoral high noon. I was privileged to be there as a journalist when 99 out of 100 seats in the freely elected chamber, in other words, the Senate, where they rigged it in the lower chamber, but they hadn't rigged it in the upper one. So 99 out of 100 went to solidarity. And they were back on the map. Here, for those who feel a little bit of uh, hark back to 1980s retro fashion, here's me meeting with um, Anne Applebaum, the Warsaw correspondent at that time of The Independent, myself, and General Yaruzelski in the uh, uh, dark glasses, for, uh, yeah, um, who had put tanks on the streets himself eight years earlier and now was obliged, basically, to roll back. So in that interview, Anne and I said to him, well, like, you've lost so catastrophically. Do you really have any credibility left? And, you know, you have to kind of leave the stage now, don't you? And so in a nice, small, scoop kind of way that, as you know, journalists are always very excited about, that was the first time he said to us, kind of, yeah, we may actually need to go. Uh, and that became the headline of, we may actually lose power. And that was... Um, an extraordinary moment of change, which, again, Western politicians understood far too little. You'd think they would understand the drama of a non-communist prime minister, but they didn't. They went, oh, yeah, that's great. That new guy in Moscow, the one with the port wine birthmark, Stein birthmark, Mikhail Gorbachev, great that he's said yes to all of these ha things happening. Failing to see, of course, Gorbachev had an important role, as anyone, many in the room, no doubt, studying politics, and those who don't study politics, all well known. But that sense of the grassroots movement, remember the first stories I told you, completely predate Gorbachev. He was brought in to try to cope with already the fact that things were moving. He wasn't driving it, it was being driven from underneath people who seize the gaps, if you like, that he opened up. So there we are, August 1989, we have a non-communist prime minister, which is you know, about as likely as a non-communist North Korean prime minister would be today, frankly. Um, and this next one then goes to East Germany, a couple of months later, uh, two months later. So that was late August was the prime minister, and actually six weeks later, the beginning of October, the Nikolai Kirche, St. Nicholas's Church, um, was 
the heart of opposition protests in East Germany, demanding more freedoms and greater change. The, bar the borders had slightly opened up. People were flooding out through Hungary and other places in, in different ways and at different times. But those who wanted to stay, more scary actually, much more scary for the East German government, was the ones who stayed behind in, in increasing numbers, saying, wir bleiben hier, we are staying here. And normally you might think, oh, that's great, you're being loyal. But what wir bleiben hier meant was, we're staying here because we want to change everything here. So the government was actually more frightened of the ones who stayed than the ones who left. The government had pre-announced a massacre on this day. They were fed up of the fact that the protests were growing and growing. <laughs> And so they said that if you go out, there was actually a reader's letter in the paper, quote-unquote reader's letter, which said we will suppress these protests, these counter-revolutionary actions, was the phrase, quote, if need be, with weapons in our hands. And what they thought was, okay, we'll frighten everybody so much, they'll stay at home. Uh, sorry, wrong guess. Um, about five times more people came out in Leipzig that night than had ever come out before, knowing that they might well be shot, knowing that the hospital's casualty wards had been emptied to allow them, knowing broadly what I'd already seen myself with my own eyes, militia trucks armed to the teeth, lots of you know, people waiting with the armed troops, waiting to open fire if and when given the order. And remember, this was only four months after Tiananmen Square, which the regime had publicly praised. So everyone kind of knew what was coming. And I had kind of was, thought I had found somewhere where I could be safe if and when the shooting might start. But I, like everyone else that night, presumably, uh, felt deeply frightened by what was about to happen, but knew that obviously this was important to, to be able to document. I forgot to say the city had been closed off, they were trying to stop journalists get in through various bits of uh, luck and, and small amounts of good judgment. I'd managed A to get in and, and B to stay, where the colleagues I'd arrived with were actually thrown out almost immediately. So I was there to witness this night, and it was one of the most incredible nights of my life. And the reason it was such an incredible night was because absolutely nothing happened. So... I was in the church service, and we were all just waiting and waiting. You have the feeling in the pit of your stomach. We then, we can hear all the noise from outside the church, only 2,000 in the church, tens of thousands outside. Come outside the church, come out to what you're seeing here, these huge numbers of people. And you think, okay, so the beatings will start in a moment like always. The arrests will start, the grabbing by the secret police, the Stasi. And then you kind of walk, and you walk, and you walk, and you think that they're not, not just not shooting, they're not even beating people. They're not arresting people. They're doing nothing. So it took us a while. It was a circuit of the ring road. It took us a while to realize what was happening. And then you realize your fear, your adrenaline fear kicks into the extraordinary um, euphoria. And someone I spoke to later in East Germany, a Leipziger who was there that night, she said afterwards to me, that night I felt as if I could fly. And I identify with that very strongly because it was a moment where things were so impossible. People knew you couldn't defy the gunfire, but basically the regime backed down at the very last moment because people had shown more courage than seemed thinkable and therefore created change. 
And it was an incredible set of changes they created. So this was a piece that I published a few weeks later, which basically takes what had happened in Leipzig and the various retreats there were in the weeks that followed to its natural conclusion that, like, if you've made all these changes, then, like, what's this wall even standing for? I won't go into the details, but every single week they did another one. You could almost escape via Czechoslovakia by now. Um, and the... As I put there, the removal of the wall was now not just a possibility, it was one of the few logical options left. So that appeared, as you can see, on the 8th of November. On the 9th of November, 1989, was when the wall came down. So thank God I managed to write it just in time. I'd been meaning to write it for several weeks. Um, but uh, that was, I certainly didn't expect it to come down that day, I have to say. I thought there were several weeks before it would happen. That kind of change, and what was startling for me about that was that the politicians repeatedly failed to understand what was coming because they didn't think the people of Leipzig mattered. They thought the guy in Moscow mattered or maybe the boss in East Berlin mattered. And people tell stories which are kind of accurate as far as they go about pieces of paper that got mixed up and therefore led to the opening of the Berlin Wall. Some of you may well know those stories. They're kind of true in their way, in the narrow sense, the day and the hour was because of a piece of paper that maybe shouldn't have been read out but was. But fundamentally, it was the people of Leipzig. Das Wunder von Leipzig. It's called in, in, in German sometimes the miracle of Leipzig, and it, and it really was. The spirit of Leipzig really drew on the spirit of things that Václav Havel, Czech dissident playwright, later president, wrote about in this quite magical essay called The Power of the Powerless, which he wrote in, again, the depths of the Cold War, before even solidarity existed, in 1978. And the power of the powerless made the argument that if everybody came together at the same time, then um, it would be... It would be possible for extraordinary change to be created. And Maslow Havel had a hypothetical greengrocer in his story we said, well, what happens if he defies the authorities by not putting the proper slogan in that says, oh, power to the people, and etc.? Uh, or rather, like, or the, the various of the communist slogans he should have put in if he didn't put it in. And how Václav Havel describes it in his essay is that he defies the authority because he, quote, steps out of living in the lie. So he just finds his own dignity by stepping out of living in the lie. And Havel goes on to say, his, the greengrocer's revolt, is an attempt to live in truth. He makes one tiny protest of like, I don't believe in this stuff you've asked me to put in my window, so I'm not going to. In real life, he would, of course, be severely punished because you're ordered by the party which rules your life to do what you do. But Havel plays with the hypothetical of what would happen if lots of people challenged at the same time and basically with the House of Cards... Uh, collapse because it has no real reason to exist. People mocked him. As Havel said in one of the previous books that was mentioned earlier, he wrote the foreword very generously for a book that a friend and I wrote. And he said there we were mocked like Czech Don Quixotes tilting at unassailable windmills. It just wasn't going to happen. But actually, ten years later, exactly what he had happened um, predicted. So this photograph I took when we met in late October 89 in one of his favorite restaurants by the river. There he is with his Czech beer in front of him. And he said, 
the pressure cooker will explode, but no one knows when. Well, three weeks later, <laughs> only took three weeks, uh, the pressure cooker did explode. And again, I was privileged to be there. My colleague Brian Harris took this amazing and iconic photograph of the protests in Wenceslas Square when hundreds of thousands of people came out in Prague. They rang little bells. They jangled the keys, said, you know, it's your time to go. Within a week, the entire regime had collapsed, and that was the end of them. And this was the power of the powerless that was absolutely made real. But that sense of politicians and powerful people still not understanding that ordinary people actually make a difference to the lives of everybody was still very much there. So in 1989, I described how memorable October 9th, 1989 was for me when I saw this massive regime just back down in, in the front of unarmed people, and it was a, a very, very moving experience, as I described. Another extraordinary experience that I had um, was about six months ahead of this photograph. I'll just I'll describe it in, in a moment. When, in March 1989, I visited all of the three Baltic uh, republics, the Baltic states, the Baltic republics, as they then were, of the Soviet Union, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And they had been occupied by the uh, Soviet Union, by Stalin, um, uh, 50 years earlier. But in Moscow, in Russia, no one was allowed to talk about that. Everybody in those places knew exactly what the reality was, but it was forbidden to speak about the secret deal between Hitler and Stalin, between the um, foreign ministers Molotov and Ribbentrop, and the secret deal which had allowed the carve-up and basically given independent states. So I went there and met people, each of whom talked about not if, but when the Soviet Union would end. And one of them was a senior political editor. I said, well, thank you so much. What an interesting conversation. I'm like amazed by this. Obviously, this is all off the record. And perhaps the most startling bit of that interview was like, why would this be off the record? And that sense of self-belief, something that a year earlier would have been punishable by a huge long jail sentence to challenge Soviet rule. Now, it wasn't. This photograph is of a human chain, it may only be a small chunk here, but this human chain was of two million people, which is about a third of the entire population of the three uh, republics going right across those three republics, those three countries, um, challenging Soviet rule. And again, the irony is, for me, this was huge for people in the Baltic states, this was absolutely huge. It didn't make huge headlines in the West. It was like, oh, they've had a human chain. Okay. Um, let's see what Gorbachev thinks about that. That was a default. Let's see what Gorbachev thinks. But in reality, this power that was coming up from below, they also had a wonderful, in Estonia, a singing revolution, where the singing festival was the heart of the revolution, which is a nice thing. So all of those things were underplayed, and that was... You are looking at one significant reason of why the Soviet Union fell apart, because three countries which had been occupied 50 years ago said, no, enough already. All of which meant that when you uh, get to um, the hardline coup in the Soviet Union in August 1991, again, the assumption was that this just wasn't going to um, achieve 
anything at all because like what could people do they've got all the tanks they've got all the guns so a very distinguished guardian columnist wrote you know, a thousand words uh, pouring mockery over those silly little boys and girls who have decided to go out and risk their lives on the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg because there is every reason to think the coup will succeed the indignation of the people on the streets counts for nothing well okay ha ha Later that day, the very same day those words were published, the coup did actually collapse. And the reason why it collapsed was because of the incredible courage of the people who'd come out. So again and again, what you're seeing there is somebody pulling down the statue of the secret police chief, Dzerzhinsky, outside the KGB headquarters. So again and again, we are seeing this sense of it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. And then, of course, when it does happen they will retrofit the explanations to tell you, oh yes, well the various geopolitical reasons why it happened is this, that. Geopolitics are very important, as we all know, again, especially in this building, I mean the analysis of politics clearly matters, but that sense of what ordinary people can do is the bit that you leave out at your peril, because the people who didn't see how much that mattered didn't get what uh, important Russian uh, commentators said, unlike the, the Brit, but the Russian com commentator had said months before the coup, he said, no, too many genies are out of the bottle, he said. And that was exactly right. So it never went back to square one. We do, of course, have massive problems in Russia today, but that is a different issue from what was achieved at that time. Same thing. You will recognize there uh, Tahrir Square <coughs> and the amazing events of 2011. Again, again, it was the same narrative. Oh, that's not going to achieve anything, said all the people who really felt they knew and understood. So the US ambassador to Cairo, I quote her not because she was more stupid than anybody else. She absolutely wasn't. I'm sure she's a, you know, an intelligent analyst, and she shared it with other intelligent analysts. But when she had youth activists coming to her and talking about creating change through peaceful protest, she wrote back to Washington and basically said, again, the little dears, it's very sweet of them, but she didn't use that language. What she did say was that it was highly unrealistic to imagine that any of this change was actually going to come. But in fact, of course, again, as we all know, after just 18 days of people risking their lives again and again with incredible creative mischief, I haven't got time to put here, but masses of humor, music, and fun in the midst of the violence that was being unleashed. And at the end of that, there's the firework day, if you like, when Mubarak, the brutal ruler who'd been in power for decades, was finally uh, forced, to, forced to resign. So yet again, it was the proof that things can be um, achieved that weren't, that weren't expected. Um, and perhaps emblematic, we'll come back to this, but emblematic for all of this is a, a key activist, Egyptian activist, uh, just 26 years old at that time, called Asma Mahfouz, who did an amazing video which is easily watchable on YouTube at a time when no one was coming out on the street. They weren't coming out quite logically because it was too dangerous. And she recorded this video in her apartment. Whoever says it's not worth it because there will only be a handful of people, I want to tell him, you are the reason for this. And you are a traitor, just like the president or any security policeman who beats us in the streets. Sitting at home and just watching us on the news or Facebook leads to our humiliation. Now that's the kind of thing that only someone risking their lives could say. I wouldn't ever dare to use such strong language as that because the people she was encouraging to go out, she was also encouraging 
frankly, to go out and risk their lives. And people did risk their lives and, and suffered greatly, even those didn't lose their lives, suffered a lot. But from her perspective, we need to do it. We need to do it together. And that video went, if you like, super viral. It was watched millions of times. The net effect was, not just that video, of course, other things as well, that millions did go out in the streets, and that in turn ended up with, after only 18 days, Mubarak, who seemed utterly you know, immovable, was actually gone. Same story, again and again and again. So in 1998, when this picture was taken, uh, I was working for The Independent then. I was with my photographer colleague Tom Pilston, who took this um, photograph of Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma. Um, it was the classic reporter's trip. You go, you somehow manage to get the interview through various bits of subterfuge, get arrested on the way out, but luckily we'd already stashed our notes and our film, and so we were bundled off to the airport, and uh, you know, the cover story duly appears. Same as with Egypt, same as with Russia. I mean, Egypt, massively problematic today. Russia, massively problematic and as we all know what we've seen in recent weeks and months has been so troubling in Burma or Myanmar. Some of you may have seen Amnesty International published a, a big report just um, a few days ago identifying crimes against humanity on the horrific things that the Burmese authorities have been doing with Rohingya and sadly um, Aung San Suu Kyi has either failed to say things or even worse to describe those kind of things as fake news and other things. So, a lot of problems there today. But sticking still, which I think is still relevant, to the kind of courage and dignity that she showed at the time. She said to us when we met her in, in, in the interview we had at that time, she said, a bit like Václav Havel had said, uh, I guess a decade earlier, she said, change will come, but who knows when. Um, so Tom Pilsen and I were both kind of put on the blacklist for having done that. And then I was removed off the blacklist in, uh, 12 years later in 2010. And 2010 was when, uh, that's when Aung San Suu Kyi herself was released from house arrest and, in fact, from jail she'd been in that point. But house arrest, she'd spent most of the past couple of days. You guys are probably looking at this slide and thinking, where on earth does this fit in? Does this come from the wrong presentation? Has he been doing his uh, uh, sports pages mixed in with things? But believe me, this is actually relevant. This is the front page of a uh, key Burmese sports paper called First Eleven. As you can see, in like countries around the world, they're very excited by the Premier League, and so the headlines you can see, Sunderland frees Chelsea, United stunned by Villa, and Arsenal advance to grab their hope. Every single headline, every newspaper, has to go to the censors in Burma. And the government have made it very clear that the release of Aung San Suu Kyi, adored by the country, but whose name had been forbidden to even mention over the years, it must not be made a big deal. On no account must it be on the front page. It has to be buried. And papers were kind of told on no account, on no account must you do it. Anyway, the census saw this one, signed it off, got the facts, sent it back. Yep, English football results, you know, that's interesting. Fine, oh, defeated Chelsea, oh, okay. Um, and then it came out in colour the next day. And it was rather a different story. Sue, in other words, Aung San Suu Kyi, is free, unite, and advance to grab the hope. The regime went completely nuts and said that was not what was allowed. And they said, no, I know, but we've already done it now. Uh, so the editor got arrested, the newspaper closed down. But they didn't mind one tiny little bit because they had managed to create that creative mischief 
that made the regime look foolish. And it was just, quote, a joke, but of course it was a courageous joke. The guy ended up in jail for the joke, but the pleasure was had by all of those readers. This paper, of course, sold out, like, instantly, um, because it was um, showing basically what it said was, a bit like in Leipzig, we are no longer as frightened of you as we were. Do what you want, but we no longer are so frightened. One of the things throughout what you've seen and, and part of the theme of, of the book, but one of the themes that has interested me for so long, in parallel to the politics, which of course I have written about, of course we all think about its course, really important, that narrative. But what um, a Serb activist and friend, Surja Popovich, calls laughtivism, and it's a great word of activism and laughter together. He himself is a maestro of laughtivism. He helped lead the student movement Otpor in Serbia, which led to uh, the fall of Slobodan Milosevic, the Serb um, strongman ruler who launched so many wars in the Balkans and eventually went. And so laughtivism is, I think, something which is incredibly relevant for the stories I'll show you in quick succession here, um, but also, I think, relevant for any of us to think about. Because basically, when you're doing laughtivism, you kind of enjoy what you're doing, and so you get less tired. And that's the danger of activism. You feel tired, you feel nothing will be achieved. So endless, endless examples of just mocking the rulers. So this one, for example, is in Belarus. It's a pillow fight. Loads of people got arrested for a pillow fight, but the pillow fight was just like, you can't control our lives. On the same, a different occasion, also Belarus, they had illegal clapping, which if we get into it, I can explain if anyone wants to hear more, but basically clapping the president became illegal because it contained too much irony is the short version. So people just stood there clapping and then they got picked up, including a one-armed guy got arrested for clapping, so that was quite funny. Um, there was a donkey press conference uh, in Azerbaijan, which again, the people who made this video, which again went viral in Azerbaijan, they, of course, got jailed, but I spoke to one of the guys afterwards who said, no, I was happy, you know. I knew that they put me in jail, so that meant they were frightened of my donkey. That was fine. He suited that. This, I love this story of um, my stealthy freedom. Some of you may know in Iran, a uh, Facebook page, which is about throwing off the headscarf. And this unbelievable picture in, anyone who knows Iran, one of the most public places imaginable in the middle of Isfahan, throwing off a headscarf. Um, from a wheelchair, getting her friend to photograph and then posting. Million, more than a million have done that with incredible um, courage uh, of, of that. Even in Syria, you'll recognize Mr. Thin-Face, thin bottom right, um, Hassan and the other monsters there. Can you imagine the danger of having satirical puppets, a bit like um, the old uh, British television show Spitting Image, was done about Assad by Syrians after the protests had started. The incredible courage of that. They need to smuggle the puppets. They need to kind of conceal them in their luggage. All of those incredible dangers. Uh, in Thailand, against the military jumper, junta, there was stuff about you weren't allowed to meet, and so there was illegal picnics, illegal book reading sprees, um, which went on. In Ukraine... There it was holding up a mirror to the police of like, really? You're going to beat your daughter, but women especially were doing it, your daughter, your sister, your grandmother, you're going to beat or kill these people? And interestingly, you can see the faces of those who don't look up, they're all looking away because they don't like the idea of it. 
The police did actually what caused the fall of Yanukovych, all the big protests were about a few years ago, was basically when his police uh, defected at a certain point, and that kind of proved the end. Um, so, so many things like that. And then this, of course, from Hong Kong 2014, again, massive creativity that we saw in the, um, uh, in the, the Hong Kong protests. Yet again, you won't be surprised to hear me say there was somebody with enormous wisdom and enormous importance and enormous experience who explained to us, Lord Charles Pole, he doesn't like to pronounce his name Powell, but it has to be Pole. Lord Charles Pole, who was a former foreign affairs advisor to Margaret Thatcher, who explained to the world and to these people themselves that they were, quote, again, unrealistic, notice that word. It's a pity there is perhaps a small black cloud there in Hong Kong. In other words, they have no universal suffrage. Sorry about that. But, quote, unquote, that's life, said Charles Pohl from his very, very comfortable armchair wherever he sits uh, here in, in the UK. So that's what he told those people who were risking everything to do what they, what they did at that time. And... The protesters were brave enough simply to ignore him. So Joshua Wong, Nathan Law, two of those who, as you may have seen, have been jailed in recent months, actually just released now, and each of them remains defiant. Nathan Law said, as, as he was uh, being um, threatened with imprisonment the first time, he said, he quoted Gandhi and said, but you will never imprison my mind. So that's the mindset they've got. Charles Pohl thinks they ought to basically grow up and not be seeking change, but they think very differently. For me, I would rather take my lessons of how to approach truth to power from someone like Ai Weiwei, who, as you know, has also been jailed for being so outspoken, and in this famous image is when he does it into the mirror in the elevator just after he's been arrested and basically tweets that to the world as a protest as he is being arrested. Um, and he himself uh, talked about, in the, uh, the forward to, to, to my own book now, which he generously wrote, he said, when a totalitarian society faces creative protests, it's like ice meeting fire. Now, of course, Ai Weiwei and the rest of us have no idea what impact a given protest might have or might not have. But what's in his mind is exactly the same as was in Václav Havel's mind uh, 30 years earlier with Power of the Powerless, is you do it because you do it. You may not know what you will or won't achieve, but who knows what you might achieve. And again, you'll see how it overlaps with what I quoted from Asma Mahfouz from Egypt, that it's about believing the possibility of change. And from her perspective, if you're saying, ah, that's not going to go anywhere, you are directly part of the problem. And I do think that's you know, an incredibly important argument to make. At which point we get to the but. Here we have, I've been telling you stories of massive protests in places where the regimes have all of the guns and have all of the tanks and have all of the powers, who arrest people, who beat people, who kill people. And yet, these incredible changes, unbelievable changes have come. So therefore, logically, how much easier should it be if we live in a democracy where you're not going to be jailed or beaten or shot, probably, hopefully, uh, for protesting to create change? 
But that's the paradox, of course, that we're now seeing is the growth of illiberal democracies where it is much harder to get. To be fair, even in what I guess most people would still call a lib yeah, it was a liberal democracy, um, here in Britain in 2003, very famous example, you, know, you had two million people who went out on the streets of London and other cities, let alone other millions around the world, protesting against uh, the Iraq war. It made not a blind bit of difference, and the Prime Minister of that time, Tony Blair, of course, got re-elected. But certainly what we're seeing now with the illiberal democracies, for example, this obviously, the, the pink pussy hat protest, so inspiring to see people coming together in such incredible numbers, not just in the United States, around the United States, but again in cities around the world. But yes, we're all in it together. But of course, the guy sitting in the White House just doesn't basically care. At least that's how it feels. And that is an extraordinary challenge, I think, for all of us, of how to move things forward. I do feel that things can still be moved forward, but I think we all need to confront head-on, um, and we in the UK obviously have our own problems with, like, oh, we'll quote, everybody thinks like this. And, well, no, not actually. There's, you know, around half of the population don't think that. And that sense of how to bring people onto your side, of understanding that basically, certainly in the US context, that basic natural justice and natural rights matter. And there it's a matter of finding the common language. And I do think that protesters who live with their own bubble, that's been true in many of the regime places as well. You need to find your allies in order to um, create the change. Stanislaw Baranczak, a Polish poet, wrote a wonderful line in a poem called Those Men So Powerful, of which the final line is, in the end... It is they, in other words, the people who are afraid of. It is they who are afraid the most. And as we've seen in my other examples, I think that is true again and again. But that is where the real but comes in. It's kind of less true at the moment today. So Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, he thinks he can shoot, his, his police can shoot and kill thousands of people in his, quote, war on drugs, um, which has basically become a war on the poor in many ways, and take no punishment for it because he's got enough people who go, yes, don't, we don't care about that rights, and trying to turn that narrative around for people to understand that rights and justice matter for all of us. And in a way, you get back to you know, the famous Martin Nemo line, you know, I didn't speak out when they came for this group or that group or that group, and then eventually... When they came for my group, there was, there was, when they came for me, there was no one left to speak out. And in a sense, that's the danger of what we're seeing. So Duterte in the Philippines, in, with Jarosław Kaczynski in Poland, I've described to you, and many of you may already know, the heroic role that Poland changed and Poles played in opening so much up in past years. And yet now we have someone who's trampling on the independence of the judiciary, Amnesty International published a report a few days ago about freedom of assembly and massive problems on that as well. Difficulties on freedom of expression. You're going, really? You got rid of the totalitarian and now you're kind of bringing the bits back in. But he's still got popular support. True also of Viktor Orban in Hungary. True of a whole line of those people who've gained electoral support and therefore feel that they are basically unassailable and in ways 
greater than was true of the old bad regimes, they're not unassailable, but they are in a strong position which I think we all need to think about. But I do think that we need to kind of go back to that first principle of thinking, but we do, each individual of us, does make a difference. In other words, that sense going from Harvard of power of the powerless, which applies in a democratic elected context as much as it does in an undemocratic one. And in that context, I would quote, in a way this overlaps with some of the quotes I've already given you, but Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader in Russia, who, to put it mildly, has quite a tough time dealing with President Putin and, and today's Kremlin, where they think nothing of uh, killing both journalists and politicians have, of course, been murdered in, in, in recent years with impunity. Um, but Navalny was at a, a rally in the, uh, the Russian Far East the other day, and almost channeling Asma Mahfouz, although in a much gentler way, with her sense of you are the problem, he asked uh, the crowd, who do you think is your biggest enemy? And of course, he got all the chants saying, Putin, Putin. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Corruption, corruption, they said. Well, maybe no, not. And he said, no, it's not Putin. It's not corruption. Our biggest enemy, he said, is the belief that we cannot change anything. And you can disagree with Navalny on many different things. But I think with that one line, he absolutely got to the heart of it. And it's true that in Russia today, I say a country that I know pretty well, having, having lived there as a, a student and gone back repeatedly, um, it's that sense of belief. And it's true for Russia of people actually believing in our something better rather than thinking, ah, this is just what life is like. We, we have this. And that's true in so many places. Turkey, I want to finish on for reasons that those of you who've been watching today's news may quickly guess at. So this was a few years ago with the Gezi Park protests and the wonderful Standing Man protests, which some of you may remember. You weren't allowed to protest. You weren't allowed to have slogans. So he just... Uh, challenged it by just standing there, an artist who came along and stood there and did and said absolutely nothing. People just looked at him to start with, and then as we see in this photograph already, others joined him. And this silent protest became incredibly powerful, again precisely because it didn't have the protests, it didn't have the slogans. It was just like, you didn't need to say anything. It was like, something needs to be different. It was a very heartening time, and when I was writing the book last year. I incorporated that story. Even in that one, I was saying, but, you know, things are looking pretty bleak in Turkey at the moment. But things have got much bleaker still. And so, although I would like to think that this talk, in a sense, contains much upbeat stuff, I, I believe passionately, for the reasons I've described to you, of the possibilities of change. I do still. But this is the person I want to show you to finish. Um, Edil Esser. She is the director, she's my colleague who is the director of Amnesty International in Turkey, an amazing woman who has fought her entire life for human rights. She and 10 others, including the chair of Amnesty International and a bunch of others, all people who care about human rights, have all been arrested, are all in jail at the moment. The trial started today. They face potentially up to 15 years of imprisonment for terrorism. The insult and the absurdity of those charges is beyond imagining. 
I firmly believe that Idil and all the others will be freed. As you know, Amnesty International started more than 50 years ago from the idea of freeing prisoners of conscience. It was mocked at that time for being, quote-unquote, one of the larger lunacies of our time. And in the meantime, thousands of prisoners of conscience have, of course, uh, been released. I don't think we expected it to be one of our own staff directors in a, a key country that would become the prisoner of conscience. But that's what she is at the moment. Uh, we'll see where the trial goes in the days to come. Um, and, but I would ask and urge all of you to find your voice to persuade your MPs or others to find their voices. Idil absolutely must be released, so must all the others, and that will be what will create a good and stable and rights-respecting Turkey. Of course it can be achieved, but if we believe it can't be, then that will allow the Erdogans of this world to trample rights quite simply. And that's where I would like to leave it on that thought and hoping for change. Thank you. so much for that lecture. Thank you, Steve. Um, well, we will now open the floor to questions from the audience. So if you can let us know your name and affiliation and wait for the microphone to arrive. Um, over there, I see two hands. Oh, uh, is, it, is it on? Oh, hello. Um, thanks for the talk. I thought it was really interesting. Um, uh, my name's Nick. I don't have any affiliations. all just a member of the public. Um, I'm just wondering, um, if you knew all the possible reasons why things are the way they are, and all the possible outcomes of what could happen if you do protest, um, would you still protest, or would you not bother? I beg your pardon. Uh, if I knew what? If, 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 if you knew all the reasons why things are like they are, yeah. and all the ways in which things could change, if you did want things to change and if you did protest, would you still bother protesting or would you not bother as a kind of philosophical uh, right. question? Okay, I'll, I'll try and answer the question. I mean, I suppose, um, I mean, first of all, I should start by saying I, I've never been in the position, I've taken small risks as a journalist and other things, I suppose. I've been exposed to some things uh, because I wanted to tell the story. But I haven't taken those kind of consistent risks which put your family at risk and your children at risk and many other things at risk that many of the people I've been describing them. So uh, I have no idea if I would show the courage that I admire so much in others. What I would say, though, I suppose, is... I would like to think the people I identify with most in Eastern Europe, which is the area of the world I know best, I mean Burma I've travelled to, I've travelled to other places where I've been in Egypt, but Eastern Europe, which I knew so well, um, especially but not only Poland during that period, identified with those who, they might not even have read Václav Havel's essay, to be honest, but kind of had that sense that I want to feel better in myself by doing something. And a line that I often think of, my colleague Edward Lucas, um, now The Economist, but who was then the Prague correspondent of The Independent when I was the, the East Europe editor of that. And during the Velvet Revolution, in other words, the November 1989 revolution in Prague, or just after it, he talked to this Czech guy who'd never been on a demonstration before, went on the, later they became peaceful, but the first demonstration that series was very violent, and the Czechs were so, like, outraged by the violence that, again, a bit like Leipzig, many more of them went out because they felt it was un-Czech, um, which uh, speaks well of them. Um, 
But this guy said, as I lay on the ground being beaten, I felt free for the first time. And that always strikes me as an incredibly eloquent way of describing. So I have no idea if I would have been as brave as that guy deciding to go out that night. But I think that for all of us there is an element of that. So you're taking risk consciously. If you've actually got a crystal ball that says you're going to be shot dead at 4.30 this afternoon, then I guess you've got like, okay, not. But in a sense, factoring the risk that you might be shot dead at 4.30, you... Many people, because I, I say I'm not speaking of a personal experience, but many people play that Russian roulette, often on behalf of the next generation as well. So in Latvia, for example, which you were born in, I think, correct. Uh, so in Latvia at a time when the uh, so then Soviet troops were coming in and were threatening to kill people and did in fact, the cathedral was emptied, but people were like on, on alert, waiting for the gunfire they knew was coming. And it was a great party. It was like an all-night party, and people had jazz bands and bonfires and all this stuff. But people, it was dead serious. And I met this lovely couple who'd come into Riga, the capital, a, uh, a forestry guy and, and, and his wife, and they were dancing together, and I rudely interrupted their dance and said, you know, but you could be killed at any point, because, like, we kind of know there had been in Lithuania already some gunfire, some 15 dead. It was expected in Latvia, and about five died two days later. And aren't you frightened of dying? And she said, no, because I want my children to grow up in a free country. So people, I say, I'm not speaking now personally for obvious reasons, but people do make that calculation that, like, if me and lots of others can help create a better place for the next generation, then I'm already whatever age I am, and I'll move on. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. I hope I haven't dodged your question, because I do think it, it's difficult to answer what I would do, because then that gets a bit of like, well, I'm so brave, I'd do this, and I have no idea, and I might well just, you know, huddle in the bathroom, which would be a perfectly <laughs> logical thing to do. So. We have another question over there, yeah. Good evening, and thank you very much, Steve, for sharing your insights and um, uh, of, of all the protests around the world against, uh, you know, what deserves protesting against. Um, I'm an ex-LSE uh, um, student and uh, I have the benefit of having taken part in protests around the world. It helps. I have three passports, UK, Bahrain and Pakistan. Okay. So it's given me a great perspective and I've act actively protested in all these nations. Right. All the pictures you showed and shared with us are relatively recent events uh, that have transpired. Um, probably one of the oldest military occupations in the world. I think it's coming on to 50 years and one of the most evil and repressive regimes. I've not seen anything on that. People have protested from within the country and from outside. Um, and that's the occupation of Palestine. I would like to have your views on how best to tackle that because that really is the need of the hour. That is a powder keg about to go off. I'm currently yeah. based in the Middle East. And it's very evident that it could really lead to a real catastrophe. Yeah. Um, I thought actually you were going to ask me about one of the two countries that you mentioned, so Pakistan and Bahrain, which also, as you indicated, have a lot of interesting things to be said about protests in those places. But as regards Palestine, I mean, first, I'm not, um, I'm not an Israel-Palestine expert. I've been there a couple of times, and I've traveled in the occupied territories, um, but I'm certainly not an expert. But one of the things that I will say, um, and, and have written about this, is... 
you, you'll have seen that my narrative is in sense, although I didn't go into it in detail, come to think of it, but about the power of non-violent as opposed to violent protests. And one incredibly interesting piece of work, which I do encourage others to read for those interested in these themes, is called Why Civil Resistance Works. It's by two American sociologists called Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan. And Erica Chenoweth especially started off as a massive skeptic when she heard about nonviolent protest and thought that the people talking about it were just cherry-picking their examples. A bit like it's perfectly possible some in the audience today are going, yeah, but he's cherry-picked his examples of like where things worked a bit. And then they did an analysis over 100 years, which was so interesting to see the greater effectiveness of nonviolence over violence. So, you can probably see where I'm drifting with this one. What I have found extremely interesting is the small but very powerful nonviolent protest. Belin is one of the places that we've seen occupied territories. There are a number of villages and small towns that do stuff which always say, don't go for the violence because that's the strongest card of the occupying forces. If we start shooting and blowing people up, they've always got more bullets and more tanks than we can possibly have. And at least the pragmatists also amongst them accept that there will be more negative headlines globally. There will be less sympathy if they've ended up, let alone if they've walked into a cafe and blown people up or blown up a wedding party and all of those things which you know, can happen. So you're right, a massively intractable conflict um, and when rights are trampled on a, on a massive scale on a, on a daily basis. I mean, the, the Gaza bombings we've seen in recent years. I mean, the list, the list is wrong. But within that context, I think that the, when I see hope, it is people who manage to find that dignity that says, you may be shooting at us, but we are protesting back in a different way. And they have indeed gained some victories. Not big enough, but they have gained some victories. That would be right. I'm sorry if that doesn't fully answer your question about that. Well, it's just that the Palestinians have protested and they have done abuse, but you couldn't be from outside like the pillars. Yeah. And they've yet been met with extreme heavy-handedness from the Israeli government and bullets and murder children who seem to be shot their head yeah. the glory of the floor and being left by the judiciary, etc. So, you know, yeah. that hasn't quite worked. So I just wondered... I agree. I, I'm, I'm definitely not going to give you an answer to the Middle East conflict now, if that's the question. <laughs> but I, I take your point about the imbalance. Thank you. The, sorry, the woman at the back first. We'll go to you after. Sorry. Um, so, hi. Um, I imagine you won't have an answer to my question either, and that's absolutely fine because I'm not sure. Like, I don't know if there is an answer, um, but I just thought I'd ask you anyway to see if you have any thoughts. And that's um, possibly following on from this gentleman's question about the environment. Um, I watched recently Al Gore's film about, um, you know, all the things that he's, amazing things that he's done um, over the years to kind of promote awareness of climate change and things. And he seems to have spent, I don't know, 20 years just painstakingly building awareness and... Um, yeah. You know, doing all kinds of really good things and, you know, training people to be these, um, you know, advocates for awareness of, of climate change and everything. Mm. You can't fault all good good. And yet, you know, half of Bangladesh is underwater. Yeah. And, you know, the, the people... So, so I guess my question is, you know, like, you can do things little by little. And I hear what you say that violent protest 
doesn't work. And I, yeah. you know, I think violence begets violence. I hear all of that. But at some point of time, nothing is changing. So yeah. do you have anything to say? I know that's a tricky one. <laughs> anything at all? No, as I was saying, actually, just when we were outside just now, as I was saying, I, the, the difficult questions are always uh, ones that I welcome because it, it, it's good to be challenged. And you're right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to give you a, a great answer, frankly, because those are just the kind of things where it's obvious to us the kind of things that need to happen. And again, with the ma especially, but not only with the man currently in the White House, it like becomes extraordinarily difficult. There is a story in the book, in fact, about the... Um, the president of the, the former president of the Maldives, uh, Mohammed Nasheed, who was kind of felt very strongly on this. The Maldives, of course, likely to be uh, influenced, be badly affected by climate change. He got so desperate uh, that I liked the, the only very small action that did make worldwide headlines. The action that he organised was having an underwater press conference. Uh, sorry, no, an underwater cabinet meeting. I beg your pardon. So they all put on their scuba diving outfits and went down and signed stuff. Now. To be honest, that was simply a photo opportunity. But it was part of something which I hope we don't think of is in the past tense, but that kind of then led to the Paris Agreement, which was a moment of history. I mean, we're now kind of, is it crumbling? Is it not crumbling? We don't know where we are. But I think it is fair to say, and on the, on the environmental pressures that led to that agreement, I forget how many it was, but many millions put their names to a petition which went to the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, which helped to create that sense of narrative of we do need to do something, and where an agreement had not been achievable only five or ten years earlier, it happened. So, you know, you can say, well, we've moved forward that much, but I obviously am not going to disagree with you that fundamentally the bigger picture is that we, we haven't, um, and there's... Yeah, there's no question. Anthony Newton, thank you. Uh, what, do you what are the ingred ingredients, do you think, that make a successful protest? Why are some successful and some not successful? And what do you think is necessary to make that protest in this country more successful? Yeah. Um, I'm glad you've divided into two halves, because I was just thinking the first half is... is as your guess from what I've already said, it's easier for me to answer. So I'll, I'll start with that first half and then try to put across to the, um, to the British context. Um, more generally, it's two, th two or three things. Focus is one thing. Know what you actually want and hang in there like a tiger. The Solidarity people back in 1980 were really interesting. They were offered a few like, oh, we'll give you this and that and that, and then perhaps you'll go back to work. And they were about to, and actually this is quite a funny, not often, not, not, not well-known story. The male leaders of the strike were ready to back off about three days in, and the women <laughs> walked in and said, you've got a damned nerve if you're thinking of doing that, because if that happens, like, we're basically just back to square one. They're giving you, you know, 2% wage rise or something ludicrous. But, like, what does that, or maybe 10%, but what does that give you? And so um, a couple of amazing women um, in particular turned that decision around and, and, and the rest was history. So knowing what you want and not being sold short the flip side of that, of course, which doesn't contradict, is being able to compromise. You're not always going to get absolutely everything and kind of having a sense of your bargaining position. But I think most important of all is that focus. If you've got 
lots of different groups wanting different things, it falls apart. So Serbia and the Balkans was an area that, not least because they've had so many horrific conflicts, um, in the 1990s especially, I know pretty well. I kind of was there when Slobodan Milosevic came to power in 89, uh, and then was there in Belgrade as he fell in 2000. It was a bloody decade. One of the reasons he was there so long was because all the opposition could do was argue amongst each other. And he was rubbing his hands. So staying together, sticking a little bit with Serbia, what I mentioned, Sergio Popovic, the Serb activist, becomes a, rele a relevant example of like doing things which were really fun. And Sergio tells very funny stories. Um, you know, he more, pretty much a student himself at that time, but basically how cool it came to become arrested, which was a kind of quite interesting way of describing it. You were the hero of the moment and especially then there was less social media, but now we saw it in Egypt, like the great movement for releasing or her from the police station. So that sense of focus, I think, is very important. As I've described, I think keeping it peaceful is incredibly important because you lose not just world headlines at that point, you give an excuse to the regime to do bad things, but you also, and perhaps that's the most important of all, you lose people around you as well. So in every argument, the agnostic middle is kind of the most important one to get. You've got the people who agree with you, that's fine. You've got the people who never agree with you in a month of Sundays, and that's kind of less fine, but like, it is what it is. But the agnostic middle is the ones to go for. And I think probably that perhaps gives, would give you my segue to the British context. We at Amnesty International have been thinking massively, I mean all of us, but internally we've been doing lots of brainstorming about how do we deal with all this demonization that's happening all these countries who demonize the other this ethnic group or this group that and are doing bad things whether it's migrants and refugees or whether it's people who've been in the country for decades or centuries or recently right all of these different kind of discriminations that are going on but with um that kind of, to use that awful word, majoritarianism, you know, enough support for doing bad things. So somehow, it's a matter of finding language and arguments which appeals to the natural decency of people. Um, and in a sense, to come back to the Serb case again, but actually it applies many different ways. I'm thinking especially of Serbia at the moment. When you manage to get, for example, senior military officers to say, yeah, I support them on this, this shouldn't be happening. Or people who had been closely involved, all of those people, of course, their voices are important. And we do see that in a democratic context today. I mean, we all know that the voice of John McCain as a voice of Republican sanity is, you know, in some ways much more valuable than the voice of a Hillary Clinton, to be very frank, because it, you know, it just works to um, another another place. So I guess taking your second half, which I think that's it of, um, you know, we haven't discussed Brexit, I'm not massively keen to do so, but something which all of us are certainly thinking about. I think that sense of living in each other's bubbles, any way that we can get past that, I think is, is incredibly important. That argument I would say is easier to make in the United States where we have a president who is already trampling over people's rights, and I think people need to understand that much better than they do. Questions here in front, yes. The um, lady in the second row, in the middle. Hi, 
Hi, um, I'm Annabelle. Um, I was just thinking, in the UK, voter turnout is really decreasing, or it's at a pretty low point in terms of history, whereas the participation in protest is really increasing. So do you think in the future this could like, uh, influence the way we think about or change the way we think about democracy? Maybe. I mean, I would also flip it, though, in what I find a really interesting way, and I'm eager that it should not be seen. Well, it's not, and not, not is it not trying to make part of political points, but it definitely isn't. But it's a political observation that I find really interesting. In the British election earlier this year, I have to say I found myself startled. I was part of those who looked, all the people I had been criticising throughout my talk, who went, oh, that's never going to happen. And basically, I became one of those people on seeing a leader of the Labour Party who clearly wasn't going to win anything at all. The whole thing was going to fall apart. The whole thing was going to implode. Nothing was going to happen. And I explained with that enormously patronising tone of voice, which I've been criticising in others, I explained to people who were saying, yeah, yeah, it's so exciting. I said, well, it may seem exciting, but, like, this guy currently leading the Labour Party, he's going to, like, lose so disastrously that, like, what good is that to anybody? Not only how wrong was I, but I was in very good company uh, of utterly failing to address. So my takeaway, actually, from that election, and if this book was, I was still writing, I'm sure I might well have incorporated it into. And actually, it's the theme of a, a, a blog that the LSE asked me to, to write it kind of on the occasion of this. It's a British blog, and so I kind of gave it a spin. My takeaway from that was that even within an absolutely functioning parliamentary democracy, those rules that I've laid out of like, don't, tell other, don't believe other people when they tell you what can or can't be achieved. You need to do what you think is right, and maybe that will work, and maybe there are enough of us who think. And that clearly, for me at least, but I think for many people, is what happened. And you can agree or disagree with the policies, it really doesn't matter. But incredibly interesting is that energy that was there um, took pretty much, as far as I know, all the main political analysts in this country, utterly by mistake, which is weird for me, like, oh, we're having a rerun of what I've complained about so much on the Berlin Wall or the Soviet coup or all of those other things. Weirdly, it happens. So that was a long way of answering your question. It seems to me, actually, that I do still think that protest and kind of being out there and being heard is important. But funny enough, elections are... It reminds us that elections matter hugely, and each of us can think of a few things that might have been different. Actually, my God, the whole election outcome might have been different if only a few things had been different. Um, so that's my biggest takeaway. Yes, protest matters, but believing in the possibility of change. Um, I'm sure many of you know that wonderful old slogan, don't vote, it only encourages them. Um, and, you know, I think that this year proved how false that, that analogy is. We haven't heard from that side of the room, so... Um, person in the green the lady there sweater caught my eye. <laughs> it's lucky for wearing that. Thank you. Um, you've spoken about protests in a lot of very hostile environments, yeah. particularly with totalitarian regimes. And then later you acknowledge that a lot of protests in peaceful democracies, I mean like the one against Iraq, the Iraq war for yeah. example, yeah. effectively pass by and nothing yeah. much happens. How would you update protest for a peaceful democracy? Um, 
again, I mean, the, the question is entirely justified, um, and it's just the kind of difficult question I like. I fear that my answer, in a sense, I feel you've already heard my answer, which is not a satisfactory one. So let me go through this. It's tough because in any of the countries I've mentioned, the elected government can say, yeah, you can say that, but like, either that wasn't what we were elected to do, or that's not what they want, and so why should we care? So, in that context, um, I do still think, and sorry if I'm repeating myself a bit, but those basics I described, I mean, first, we kind of all know it, that when violence gets used within a democratic context as well, it's really unhelpful. It's what the TV cameras focus on. The TV cameras will say, oh, look, they smashed a shop window on Street X. There was a violent demonstration today. There may have been 100,000 people in the demonstration. There may have been a group of 10 people who were smashing windows, but if a camera was there, that's what you'll see. So that violence has already pushed things back in that sense. Um, because that doesn't actually create the change. So that sense of non-violence, I do passionately believe, is not just you know, good in a, quote, moral sense, but in the practical sense. The focus, and I say repeating myself a bit, but that sense of not thinking, ah, this isn't going to go anywhere. So in preparation for this talk, I googled and then read quite a few of these, like, oh, please, grow up, this isn't going to change anything stuff. And to be fair, you know, a lot of those pieces were making reasonable points, but they kind of failed to address what one might call the Václav Havel and or Asma Mahfouz quote that I already gave you, the Egyptian one. Now, Asma Mahfouz was talking in the context of people risking their lives really badly, but actually her logic would apply just as much within a democracy. And I think that it is fair to say I mean, I, I, I don't put, so taking the, the Trump case again, and it is, after all, in most ordinary ways, a functioning democracy. I mean, you can produce a great list of reasons in ways in which the United States is not properly functioning, but, you know, nonetheless, it has the, the judiciary, you know, it has the pillars and all of those things. And indeed, we see the media have shown themselves very, very robust. We've seen the judiciary have shown them very robust. And we have seen, not in the direct sense, but the the splitting apart within the Trump inner circle, which has begun and continues, and that in some ways you could argue echoes what I've already described in the totalitarian or authoritarian context, where at a certain point it's like enough already and, 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 and off they go. So no, I mean, I, I don't have easy solutions, and I do fully acknowledge that if you've got someone who has been duly elected, of course, in the case of the U.S. president, he actually gained less votes. But, like, it is what it is. That's the system that it's not about who got more votes. It's about the Electoral College. Um, so I can see why Democrats are unhappy, but, like, everyone signed up for those rules. Um, so when you've got, at the very least, a duly elected, and, yes, there may have been Russian interference, but fundamentally, it just makes it a more difficult thing. And I think there it's finding finding the common language with others so that you don't turn... It's fair enough to have a really set, a pitched battle, a non-violent pitched battle with those in power, but if it starts being a pitched battle between the two bits of society, f frankly, even when it's non-violent, that's not great, and certainly if it turns into violence, obviously that's 
massively not great. So those sense of belief and focus and wishing to the greatest number of people to understand, I suppose. I know there was a lady who I expected still waiting who was fantastically patient. <laughs> have you given that now? I saw almost since the beginning. You are slightly around the corner, but you yes. Have the <laughs> it's a recurring uh, theme at the moment, but it was just wondering about the uh, the uh, march against the Iraq War. Um, there's been a few references to it having failed. Well, clearly it didn't stop this country going to war with Iraq, um, but I'm not sure that it entirely failed. I wonder if you've got thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I I, I would agree. You may well have thoughts of your own. I mean. In the narrow sense, it's like, well, we're going to war anyway, and we've kind of decided. The narrative inside the British government and later was public was quite interesting, was they thought they were, quote, keeping uh, President George W. Bush somehow on side. It would be via the UN. It would all be kind of, you know, harnessed nicely. And, of course, that didn't happen as well, so it kind of failed on those levels. Plus, the aftermath was so disastrous. So you could say it failed on every possible level. And then, very interestingly, for what we've been talking about, of course, that government got re-elected a couple of years later. But I would think that every single elected politician, and actually millions of voters as well, have the experience of what happened back in 2003 in mind when thinking about going to war or not going to war. So your question is absolutely right, is that we shouldn't write something off on the basis of what happened the next day. So going back to classic things, Burma, um, again, the same point was made, like, why are they even bother? It's not going to change. 20 years of protest, but after 20 years, actually, huge changes were um, achieved. The Poles and others have been protesting in, in lots of long ways. And we see things differently. There was an interesting statistic I was reading, and I, can't, I will garble the exact statistic and therefore probably will try not to share it, but Martin Luther King, who I'm guessing that all of us in this room, you know, if you were asked for a word association game, you go, Martin Luther King, you know, icon, justice, courage, those, those are what we think of. At the time he was doing those iconic, courageous justice-focused things, that amazing speech, something like, and I will risk myself, 75% of Americans thought this was really, really bad and he was a dangerous radical. Now there's a Martin Luther King Day, which across the spectrum from left to right, like nobody would challenge the importance of Martin Luther King. So I think that's really interesting. And I, I'm not quite sure when that change especially happened. But our understanding afterwards of the role that people have played is incredibly important. And I think, as you were indicating, it's true of, of protest as well. One of the stories in the book is of an amazing French general who, when torture was so widespread in Algeria in the 1950s during the French, uh, uh, the, 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 the war with and in Algeria, uh, War of Independence, and... Um, Torture was like everywhere in the French. And there was this incredibly brave general, General de Bonardier, who spoke out publicly and said, we should not be doing this stuff. Instead of being praised, he was sacked, basically. He was demoted, to be exact. And the guy who was doing the torturing and who publicly admitted to doing the torturing was promoted. That's what happened back then. Now, in the 21st century, it's de Bonardier who has streets named after him and people understood 
understand in retrospect the role that he played, and I hope that will become more the case um, in the future. And as I point out in the book, I mean, I'd love that to be happening. What hasn't happened yet in the United States, again, people who spoke out against Guantanamo torture, like General Alberto Mora, he was kind of retired, in, again, in not quite disgrace, but kind of pushed aside. I think streets ought to be named after that guy who pushed back against those things. So that's about individuals, but I quite agree with you that I think we shouldn't judge about what happened next day or even next year, but, you know, history has a a long sweep, as the cliche goes, but it's right. Yeah. So many more hands. Maybe one quick last question and quick last answer. Um, over there, yes, the man in the second row. Hi, thanks. Um, so all of your examples were um, examples of protests where the audience was the government. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if you had any thoughts on protests where the target and the audience isn't government, so say it's that kind of norm, um, culture, biases, like how ought protests to change when it's not a law you want change, but you want the way people think yeah. to change? Yeah, that's, it's really interesting. I don't know if you're thinking of particular things, you can kind of tweak me in the direction of my answer, but let me give you a couple of thoughts. The most obvious one probably is... I'm sure there's lots, but LGBT is one that immediately comes to mind for me, where in some countries you have you know, massive problems with what the government is doing and its harassment, but actually very often it's like tolerated violence against LGBT people and all of that hatred that's churned up and then the permissiveness from the hatred that comes from the authority. And there... I would say that one of the most important things is what I described in other contexts, but actually it's kind of more important in this context, is bringing along an agnostic middle who kind of frankly don't quite understand. They don't see the humanity. That is, again, it's a demonization. That's a group of others. And they're like bad, like whoa. And so whatever happens to them in a dark alley, or if they're jailed, but also by other people sitting in a dark alley, I don't really care. And uh, a few years ago, um, there was a really interesting thing. I work at Amnesty International now, I was previously at Human Rights Watch. And that was really interesting, seeing what happened in... Um, we launched a big report in Egypt on anti-gay violence, anti-LGBT violence in Egypt. It was really hard to get other NGOs to take part, because it's like, you know, we're really exposing ourselves on this. And what happened with the way the launch happened, and it was successful and it had really important knock-on effects later, was, again, it sounds a bit like a kind of fridge magnet cliche, but it's kind of true, is seeing the humanity more generally. So basically, you're worried about torture and police torture and this, that and the other. The kind of lawlessness that we're seeing here, if you tolerate that kind of lawlessness and violence against individuals, there's a a direct dotted line that leads from that to over here. So you don't, right at this moment, need to take a view about what you think about LGBT people. What you do need to take a view on is how they are being treated and what they are suffering, because that's just their, their choice. And it was really interesting, because socially it was a big uphill battle, and I can't remember how long the preparation for that went on, but it was a long time of like how to work out to turn. So that would certainly be one, and there have been a number of other places where that's 
uh, come up where you're, yeah, trying to find the humanity is what I think. There's also, I mean, in general, I suppose racism more generally, of course, is that quite often it's racism that's institutionalized, but then the society is part of it. So the stories of the civil rights movement in the United States, I find, I have to say, so awe-inspiring. I, kind of, I guess all of us know it in general terms, but I have to say, I haven't, until I started really reading into it, the power, the courage of those people where the laws and the government were really against you and there was racism kind of entrenched in what local authorities, to some extent federal authorities, but certainly local city councils and things were doing, was absolutely entrenched. But all of that was sustained by this massive social support amongst the the white population for doing it. And as I'm sure everyone knows in principle, but the granular detail of these stories is amazing, and I encourage people to go back and read it for those who don't. The civil rights movement with like the food counter protests and the freedom bus protests. The food counter protests started with, if you like, rehearsal groups that people were doing every Tuesday evening or something as far as I remember, some Methodist chapel. They would meet together John Lewis, now a congressman, was one of those who took part. Um, and uh, the most amazing Diane Nash, one of the other leaders, also still alive and kicking. And they took part in this thing where they were repeatedly beaten and beaten and abused with the worst language possible and did it to each other. And the line that I want to come to on that was like, you need to do it not just that you don't fight back, but you don't even want to fight back. And I'm still like, how could you ever get to a place of thinking that? And of course, that was strategically done. I mean, as it happens, they were kind of, a lot of them were church people, but this wasn't about love your neighbor principle only. It was also the pragmatic. That's a really long answer to what you said. I mean, the LGBT certainly is one thing, but on the race thing, and I'm interested obviously in your thoughts on the same thing, but it feels to me that that sense of like, hello, I'm a human being, like, what's this about, was what eventually defanged a lot of the worst racism stuff that was going on in those southern cities. As we know, the problems are, like, multiple today in so many ways. Uh, but the victories that were gained at that time were massive, and they relied not just on confronting the authorities, but not giving an inch towards those who... who just didn't get the fundamentals of humanity. So you're selling back the fundamentals of humanity. So, yeah, I don't know if that... Were either of those two things... Was that, were it different examples you were thinking of? I can't, I, those would be the two that I would immediately think of would be... Would be would uh, well, there it kind of is about governments... And, okay, Occupy is... Uh, another big subject. There I would say if there were problems with Occupy, it was just that there was a lack of focus. I'm unhappy. Yeah, okay, so what should change? Whereas the civil rights programs were so focused. This particular rule on this particular bus route and these particular bus stations should change. You focus it as narrowly as that and that opens the door up to something else. The food protest. I want to sit down at the Woolworths counter that's all it was. I wasn't done at this one counter. But of course, that opens up massive, massive things. And so many people, of course, said at the time, kind of understandably, like, what good does that do us? You've got the right to eat a sandwich? That hasn't changed anything. 
But, you know, it took 50 years from that to having a black president in the White House. So that was kind of, that was a very focused thing and different focused things at different times. Occupy a much larger conversation. I know that we're kind of running out of time, but my argument would be that one of the problems with Occupy was it had lots of feel-good factor and lots of like, things shouldn't be this way, but there was very little focus on exactly what should change and who needed to change that. And, and it feels to me that was the challenge on that. Inequality, not time to put it mildly to, uh, to come up with proper solutions on that here, but inequality, you know, clearly one of the world's, one of this country's worst things, but also one of the world's worst challenges on so many levels. But simply going out and saying not good actually needed more focus than that, I would say. So I would see that as being very different. Thank you, everyone, really, for the questions. And please join me in thanking Steve Koch.